One Week Season. going on inner circle fam welcome to the week 15 edition of the tuesday inner circle podcast i am your host i am your guest i am jm to win we are not live this week so throw this baby on 1.5 x speed and let's get started i'm actually pretty excited to be doing a few of these non-live down the stretch it's been fun to do the live stuff it was really cool especially the first half of the season or so where People were jumping up on stage and asking questions live in person, uh, but I kind of feel like I'm able to collect my thoughts a little bit more when I'm recording on my own. And so this gives us a space to hit a few different things, hit some different angles. And one of the things I want to start with is, well, let me start with this. So today we're going to take a look at three different things. We're going to take a look at my roster from this last week. We're going to take a look at the winning roster from the slant, and we're going to take a look at the winning roster from the power sweep. So one of the best things that you can do as a creative, whether you are a painter or a movie director or a writer or whatever it might be, a musician, is absorb what we could call winning music, absorb what we could call winning books, absorb what we could call winning movies, movies that do well and hit all of the notes that a good movie hits, books that do well and hit all of the notes that a good book hits. And uh, basically to ingest excellence and understand what excellence looks like. And part of that is obviously studying it and breaking things down and learning from it specifically. But also the reason I talk about studying rosters and dedicating time to doing that is because there's one side where you really break down a roster and think about how they put things together, which is obviously a little bit of what we're going to be doing in today's segment. But there's the other side that's sort of the subconscious side, that as you keep seeing what good rosters look like, you will keep getting a better feel for how to build good rosters yourself. You kind of set up these guidelines for yourself in your mind so that when you're looking at things yourself, certain thoughts are triggered and you recognize, okay, this would work. This might fit. This is a way I could approach this. And so that's one of the reasons why I've encouraged that for years. But I also recognize this is one of the things that we're, I'm already kind of working on what inner circle is going to look like next year. And I, I teased this last week, but we're going to have things more organized and more syllabus driven so that you can have a sense of, okay, at this point in the season, we're going to be focusing on this. At this point in the season, we're going to be focusing on this. And part of that's because we are always talking about being as process oriented as we can be. When we are process oriented, we basically remove the need to make decisions on a day to day basis. So, if it's a Tuesday, for example, on my end, I don't have to think about what I'm doing on Tuesday. My Tuesdays are the same. And if a particular Tuesday is different, I've already kind of put in the notes of, hey, on this Tuesday, I have to add this thing in or the schedule changes in these ways. And what that allows is when I get to Tuesday, I don't have to make any decisions or think about what do I do today or how do I structure this day. But I just look at my process for that day. And then I can dedicate all of my attention and focus to actually doing those things. So one of the things that we're going to be working on next year is 
helping you guys individually build your own processes for NFL. Because if I say study rosters, that just ends up being sort of a vague thing. It's like, well, okay, I've heard this, but there's no guidance or direction in terms of what does this look like? Or where do I fit this into my schedule? Or it's something that you think, like some of you have probably thought, okay, I'm going to do this every week. And then it kind of slips away after a week or two of doing that. And so uh, we're going to kind of help position you guys for success in a lot of different areas in terms of taking control of your own NFL DFS schedule from a realistic viewpoint, right? Like maybe some of you have five hours a week that you have to dedicate to DFS. Maybe some of you have three hours a week that you have to dedicate to DFS. Maybe some of you have eight or nine or 10 hours. And so understanding what you can do with the amount of time that you have and, and how to best use that time. But bringing this back over to the short term, one of the things that I'm going to be focused on over the next few weeks is this kind of roster breakdown stuff and really getting in there and seeing some of the different things that work, some of the different things that can work, some of the different things that have worked, and some of the angles that we can be thinking about as we are building our rosters ourselves. So again, we're going to go through my roster. We're going to go through the winner of the slant, which is about... 50,000 entries, and we're going to go through the winner of the power sweep, which is about 5,000 entries. Or check that. The slant is 25, 26,000 entries, and the power sweep is a little over 4,000 entries. And then the game changer, which is what my roster was in, is about uh, a little over 300 entries. And then we have one question that we're going to get to. So that is what we will be working through today. Before we get to that, since I'm just chatting with you guys, the Inner Circle family, uh, we sent out that email last week about the OWS for Life membership that we opened up. Obviously, you guys have probably figured this out, but some of this is, as we've talked about, we're trying to balance the finances and kind of bridge some stuff because there's still some stuff we're wanting to build. And as we've said, we're seeing kind of what 2023 and 2024 is going to look like on the site with some of this stuff that we've been doing paying off. Uh, but this kind of helps us get some bridges built between here and there and allows us to have some extra funds to build out some of the other things we're wanting to build out. But also it's just a really cool opportunity if you've done the math. Most of you are paying 99 or 129 for Inner Circle and the OWS for Life membership is 399. So that basically means if you are going to be on OWS for three or four more years, you end up paying for this and then you can keep using OWS in perpetuity beyond that point. So even if you kind of aren't as focused on DFS five, six years from now, maybe you're doing some sports betting or maybe you play DFS from time to time or maybe you use OWS for season long stuff, which you might still be playing in five, six, seven years. So what I really love about this OWS for Life membership is it kind of takes the pressure off to say, maybe I wouldn't want to be paying $99 a year or $129 a year five years from now. I don't know that, but now I'll have this membership that I can use on the weeks when I need to use it, uh, and it will just be there for me for the next five years, the next 10 years, the next 15 years however long you might be interested in fantasy football. So uh, there are 122 of those memberships left, which is pretty incredible. Uh, if you read the email last week, you know that we opened up 200 of these memberships. So 78 of them have gone already. Uh, so 122 left, I would imagine we'll be down to probably about 100 by the end of week 15. And then there'll be like eight weeks left in the season with, well, eight weeks left in the season and playoffs uh, with about 100 of those left. So um, if you are interested in picking up 
OWS for Life that can be found. Uh, well, some of you might not actually even realize that we have this inner circle page, but if you're on the homepage of OWS, if you're on the desktop, there's a box on the top right that says inner circle and like a big orange button that says inner circle. So on that page, you can find a link to the OWS for life page. If you're on your phone, I think you scroll down a little bit and then you'll find this inner circle box. And again, from that page, you can find the OWS for life option. Okay. Let's get to, we're going to start again with my roster. And I was, it was a, a, not a frustrating Sunday, but a disappointing Sunday. And the difference being I talked about two weeks ago was kind of the first time in, in over a year that I'd been like frustrated with a build because in week, what was that week 13, it was very much a slate, a rare slate for this deep end of the season where the way to win was to out predict the field. And I talked about how I'd built all these rosters and kind of couldn't quite get to a Minshew roster that I liked. And so I stuck with the roster that I had with Derek Carr. And then after I sent out the Sunday morning email, I built one more Minshew roster with Sony Michelle and kind of fit all the pieces in, but then was like, well, I don't want to make these changes this late. And that roster would have finished in the top 10 in the game changer. Um, and instead I finished out of the money. So this week was, again, not frustrating, but just disappointing because uh, frustrating is where I kind of feel like I made mistakes and could have done things better or differently, whereas disappointing is like, oh, wow, I played really well and things just didn't shake out in my favor in the small sample size of one week. And when I say play really well, I mean, when I built this roster, I felt very strongly that it was one of the top five or 10 rosters I'd ever built and kind of put everything together that I was wanting to put together. So we're going to, before we look at my build and, and, and the reason why I want to break this, this particular build down is again, because if I feel this is one of the top five or 10 rosters that I've ever built, it's important to kind of look at it and say, okay, why was this a good roster? And why would this roster be profitable over time? But before we can do that, we need to take a step back. We need to zoom out and we need to say, what was the state of the slate? Now, we talk about this every week in Inner Circle, so this isn't new to you. But I'll say it like this. Why does Pepsi advertise relentlessly? I used to wonder that as a kid. We all know that Pepsi exists. Why does McDonald's or Coca-Cola advertise relentlessly? We know that these companies exist. What you don't realize as a kid when you're asking this question is the reason we know these companies exist is because they advertise relentlessly. Doritos, Pepsi, like the profit margin on the products for these companies is pretty thin, and yet they spend hundreds of millions of dollars in advertising every year, or at least tens and tens of millions of dollars in advertising each year. The reason is constant messaging is important. And so if I say, well, we need to talk about the state of the slate first, you need to, not you need to, but it's important to keep this in mind every single week. It's important to hear this all the time. And what I mean by that is I remind myself of this every single week. This is why the week is sort of structured the way it's structured for OWS. Why I send out the angles email each week is to sort of get this overview state of the slate because every single slate is going to be different. And that means that the best way to build for each slate is going to be different. And what's crazy about this is that this is something that so few people talk about, think about, or do. We saw 
two weeks ago, this the main slate after Thanksgiving, how little predictability existed in that slate. We saw the next week, the Gardner Minshew, Sony Michelle week, we saw how much the week where we had like seven or eight underpriced running backs, we saw how much predictability was inherent in that slate. And this last week, well, let's talk about this last week. This last week, what did we have? We had seven out of 11 games had an over-under of 44 or below. We had the other three games or other four games all pretty bunched up between 48 points. And, well, three of them, but between 48 and 49 points. And then the Bucks and Bills at 53 and a half. We had also talked about that Bucks and Bills game and the fact that if we really thought through that game logically, it was not likely to be a shootout so much as it was likely to be a 24 to 28 or 27 to 31 game. Those are the scores that I kept mentioning throughout the week. And we ended up with, what was it, a 27 to 33 game. And that was with the Bills sending it into overtime. So basically right in that range, it was pretty close to being a, a 24 to 27 game and it ended up then 27, 27 and going into overtime. And the reason that was all important to keep in mind was because, again, as we talked about last week, dynamic pricing no longer exists on DraftKings. So these players were priced for a potential shootout. These players, or I should say, these players were priced for the ceiling that the Bucks and Bills can put up, which is 40 plus points. And so... When these two teams are playing against each other, everybody's seeing this as the best game on the slate. Everybody's seeing this as an opportunity to get this potential shootout between these two teams without taking a step back and recognizing, well, the pricing on these players hasn't changed. And the actual likelihood of this of, of either of these teams scoring 40 plus points in this spot are pretty low. The Bills have scored their 40-point games largely in blowout wins. The Bucks have all these blowout wins because these are teams that stay aggressive deep into games. So in soft matchups, these players can keep producing deep into the game, whereas in a tougher matchup, which is what both of these teams had this last week, it's going to be tougher for the, the lid to just blow off of this game. It's going to be competitive throughout, and we're probably looking at each team scoring three or four touchdowns. So taking all of that, what I wanted to do this last week was just be different than the field. So what I'm looking at is I'm looking at this week 14 slate and comparing it to other slates. I'm recognizing that most slates have more than four attractive games on the slate by, by Vegas totals and over-unders. Uh, in, implied team totals and over-unders. Most slates have more than just these four attractive games. And furthermore, the most attractive of the bunch has players who are actually a little bit overpriced for the likeliest range of expectations for that game. Now, one of the things that I brought up this last week was that it would be very possible for all of the games to sort of hit their over-unders. And then this Bucks-Bills game actually becomes the best game on the slate. But by betting on that, you end up just staying in this clumped up group with everybody else who's also betting on that. So what would make more money over time would be finding the game that could blow past this game that everybody else is betting on. If we think it's relatively likely that Bucks and Bills is going to have a narrow distribution of scoring around that 53.5 over under. In other words, the games that are under are still going to be pretty close to 53 and a half. The games that are over are also going to be pretty close to 53 and a half. 
Well, then if we can find that game that goes for 65 or 70 points that nobody's on, that makes this week so much easier for us. So my roster, we'll start with ownership percentages on the players on my rosters. My roster. I had one player who was 53.1% owned, one player who was 32.4% owned, one player who was 28.3% owned. So again, that's 53%, 32%, and 28%. The next highest owned player on this roster was 6.6% owned. The next highest owned player on this roster was 3.8% owned. The next highest player on this roster was 3.5, then 3.1, then 1.9, and 1.3. So, Those higher owned players, obviously I went into the slate knowing that these players were going to be higher owned, but I'm not concerned about that. These players weren't my starting point for the roster. You guys probably can guess if you were on the site last week, you can probably guess what my starting point for this roster was. So I'll go ahead and and run through this roster real quickly. Starting point was Lamar Jackson plus Marquise Brown plus Mark Andrews plus Donovan Peoples-Jones. So as you know, Lamar Jackson got hurt. And there went my my roster. In fact, I actually was in the money still with this roster until the fourth quarter of games started in the late games with Lamar Jackson getting hurt. But let's step back from that and let's just look at this roster and the thought process behind this. Lamar Jackson, 1.3% owned. Marquise Brown, 1.9% owned. Mark Andrews, 3.1% owned. Add all of that together, and we're at 6.3% owned. Add Donovan Peoples-Jones, and we're at 9.8% owned from four players combined. As we talked about last week, if we go back to 2020, Two of Lamar Jackson's four best games came against the Browns. One of those was a 38-6 Ravens win. One of those was a 47-42 Ravens win. We have seen a couple games this year with the Browns where scoring just got totally out of hand. And obviously, the best way for that to happen is, one, for the Browns to be passing a little bit more, and two, for them to be attacking downfield a little bit more with Donovan Peoples-Jones. What's the likelihood of Baker Mayfield passing a little bit more? Well, typically, not that good. But as we also explored last week, in all three, in each of his last three games against the Ravens, Baker Mayfield has posted three of his four highest pass attempt numbers of the last two seasons. In other words, when the Browns play the Ravens, they end up throwing the ball a lot more. In fact, the Browns controlled this game throughout. They were up as much as 24 to 8 for a large stretch of the game, and Baker Mayfield still ended up with 32 pass attempts. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot compared to most other quarterbacks, but for Baker Mayfield, that is an extremely high number of pass attempts for, for the way that this Browns offense likes to run things. So as you see, kind of everything lined up for this game to, I'll put it like this, if Lamar Jackson's 1.3% owned, how highly owned is Lamar Jackson plus Marquise Brown plus Mark Andrews, plus Donovan Peoples-Jones as a combo. I have not gone through all 318 rosters in the Game Changer, but I would venture to guess that I was one of one or two rosters with this entire combo. 
And when you consider that 1.3% owned for Lamar Jackson out of 318 rosters means that only four rosters had Lamar Jackson, that's who I'm competing against, right? I'm already saying that this is the type of slate. Well, uh, let's look at it like this. What was the winning score in the Game Changer this week? The winning score was 186.2 points. That's low. You typically need over 200 points. That was also with Josh Allen putting up over 40 points and Josh Allen being the quarterback on that winning roster. So if we're looking at this slate and saying, you know what, this probably isn't that high scoring of a slate. And if we look at this roster, at this at this slate and say, people are going to make a lot of mistakes and, and have some overconfidence in some spots and basically overpay in a lot of spots, which is going to lower the effective ceiling of most, most paths to first place among the rosters that are in play this week. Right. Like what if what if let's look at this Bucks Bills game. We often talk about how these higher scores often come from things just playing out just the right way down the stretch. So if the Bills get stopped one time down the stretch and the Bucks are able to then sort of bleed out the clock a lot more, all of a sudden the winning score in the game changer is maybe like 176 points. I pull that number out because that was the fifth place build in the game changer. So if the first place roster is 175 points, 170 points, if we end up with a week like that, and you're on a game with a quarterback who can put up 30 plus points, who's done it multiple times this season, a quarterback who put up 37 points against this team last year, these two teams that know each other well, we know that this game sort of sets up where the the Ravens have been passing a ton this year because their backfield isn't the same that they had last year. And we know that the Browns pass against the Ravens and only four rosters out of 318 are going to have Lamar Jackson. And you're probably the only roster that has this full stack from this game. Well, what happens if this game This doesn't affect the rest of the slate, right? If this game goes for a 47 to 42 score and the other 10 games still play out the exact same way. Well, all of a sudden you're on track for a 225 point score, a 240 point score when everybody else is on a trajectory for 170, 175, 180, 185 point score. So again, that gives you so much leeway from there to do A, to get things wrong in other spots on your roster, and B, to do whatever you want on the rest of your roster. So this is where we talk about you often have to pull at least one or two levers on your roster where you're just doing something differently than the field. Differently enough that you're just on a very different path than everyone else. So when you pull this lever where you have this four-player stack that makes a lot of sense, Let's think about if that if that Browns Ravens game and and we'll use the example I used last week, right? Instead of that Browns Ravens game being two weeks ago, the, the first one being two weeks ago, if it had been a month and a half ago, if that game had played or two months ago, if that game had played in like week six, Ravens Browns, and if that game had been last year's forty seven to forty two game or even last year's thirty eight to six game, the ownership based on the new perception that people would have of this game and this matchup and this game environment, the ownership would be dramatically different just from the recency bias of that game having happened earlier this year. Instead, you get an opportunity to be the only roster in this tournament, or if you're in a larger field tournament, right, you're you're 
way under 1% of rosters that have this full stack that makes a ton of sense, works really well together, and has a lot of upside. So that was the starting point for my roster. And as you might imagine, the next steps from there were just fitting in my favorite plays, the things that I liked the most. But this is where things get important. We don't just want to look for favorite plays because that gets too much into thinking we can predict exactly what's going to happen. We also want to isolate favorite plays strategically and make sure that we're strategically thinking about our path to first place and what our roster means against other rosters. So the reason why I felt like this was one of my best rosters wasn't because I had Lamar Jackson and Marquise Brown and Mark Andrews and Donovan Peoples-Jones. That was great. It was great to have that kind of gift wrapped for me where it's like, hey, you get to be, and I'll say it like this, if I told you you get to be the only roster in a tournament of 500 or fewer people. You get to be the only roster in that tournament that has Lamar Jackson and two of his pass catchers and the downfield threat from the other team. You'd probably take that because if we played out this slate 318 times, that's how many rosters are in the game changer. If we played out this slate 318 times, Lamar Jackson is going to have more than one 35 plus point score. And we know that because we can go through his career and know that at worst, every six, seven games, he's going to have a huge game like that. So if every six, seven, eight games, he's going to have a huge game like that. And you're one out of 318 rosters betting on that happening this week. That's going to make you an enormous amount of money over time. But again, that to me, it just, that was just felt gift wrapped for me from the moment that I was looking at that game and thinking, wow, nobody's going to be thinking about this game this way. It was like, well, clearly this is the starting point for my rosters this week. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. I don't care. This is something that is so obviously going to make money over time that I'll lock it in. So that's great. But what really made this roster to me a super sharp roster was, and and I say that most of you have been around me long enough to know that I'm also uh, very comfortable with with, um, self-criticism and and self-flagellation in front of you guys as well. So if you're new to OWS or Inner Circle, recognize that this is not braggadocious. This is just being honest. And sometimes I tell you guys how horribly I played and what mistakes I made. And sometimes I'll lay out what I did really well because it's good to be able to see both sides of that because we all have both sides of that in our play. So what was really great about this roster? The other players, Alvin Kamara, Antonio Gibson, Keelan Cole, and Mike Williams. Now we'll start with Keelan Cole. Keelan Cole is just an un- a salary unlocker. Keelan Cole is just an opportunity to say, okay, this allows me to fit these other things. So Keelan Cole, 3,100. Obviously, Josh Palmer was 3K this last week. That's another direction I could have gone, but I had Mike Williams on this team. And so Keelan Cole opposite Alvin Kamara was the way that I wanted to go here, recognizing that most people weren't going to give Cole 
the credit for the role that he was expected to step into because most people aren't reading beat writers throughout the summer and throughout football season. And so I had a high comfort level knowing that the Jets really liked Keelan Cole. In fact, throughout the summer, there was a lot of question marks about who was going to be the starting three. Everybody loved Elijah Moore. Elijah Moore was lighting up preseason, but Keelan Cole was actually getting a lot of run over Elijah Moore in camp. Keelan Cole has been mixing in all season. Nobody played Keelan Cole with when he was with the Jaguars, and I was able to capture a couple different times low-owned blow-up games from Keelan Cole. So Keelan Cole at 3100 was just a salary unlocker. He allowed me to fit in these other pieces. And we never want to take the cheap guy who we're just like, well, let's take him and he can get us maybe he can get us eight to ten points. We want the cheap guy who can get us at least 20. And if he's lower owned, all the better. In fact, typically these cheap guys are going to be volatile, so you almost have to have them at lower ownership. But the main thing that he's functioning as here is a guy who, look, if he gets me six or seven points, I'm okay with that. I don't want that, but I'm okay with that because salary multiplier at this at this level matters a little bit less. If he gets 4x and gets me up to 12 points, or he has a bad game, a 2x, and gets like six or seven points, that's only five, six points difference. So in the scope of things, right, if that allows me to get from a a middling running back up to Alvin Kamara, well, the difference in points is more than made up for in the fact that I get this high-end player. So when you're going to these cheaper guys, they don't have to hit. They just have to be able to hit. They have to be able to hit at that higher level. Now, if you get 20 points from one of these cheaper guys, that unlocks a lot, right? It helps your roster quite a bit. And we'll see that when we get to the defense that I played on this roster. Uh, when you get these, these cheaper 20-point scores, that can obviously help vault you up quite a bit. But Keelan Cole, we'll just leave that at that. It's the other three players, uh, Alvin Kamara, Antonio Gibson, and Mike Williams, who are very interesting to me. And actually, let me add in the defense. The defense I used was the Chiefs' defense. And the Chiefs were 3300 The Chiefs were priced right around the Seahawks, who were going to be much higher owned. The Seahawks, who don't create pressure and don't force turnovers. And obviously, we're playing Davis Mills and kind of calculated out their points. And it was like, well, they'll probably get to about 8 to 10 points. But if I can find a defense that blows past that, I gain a lot of ground on the field. But let's take these four pieces. Kamara, Gibson, Mike Williams, and the Chiefs. And let's talk about how these pieces fit together from a strategy standpoint. It's not just about playing these players. Antonio Gibson was popular. He was 53.1% owned. But if you recall, Antonio Gibson was not just popular, but was also priced right next to Josh Jacobs, who was also going to be popular. People had to make a decision at that price point. Do I want to play Antonio Gibson or Josh Jacobs? Now, there was nothing prohibiting people from playing both guys. But the typical mode of operation for a DFS player, you're you're only putting eight skill position players on a roster. Well, seven skill position players plus a quarterback and a defense on your roster. So when you get to that two running backs at 6K, generally the thought goes, which of these two guys am I playing? So I not only want to pick a guy, Antonio Gibson, but I also want to find a way to attack the other guy. 
And this is where the Chiefs defense came in. Not only was the Chiefs defense a differentiator from the Seahawks defense, which was which was much more popular in that price range. And again, I I prefer to not take the non-aggressive. I prefer to avoid the non-aggressive defense, which is what the Seahawks are. Even when the Seahawks always kept teams scoring down and were always higher owned, I would never play them because they typically get seven, eight, nine, ten points in their good games because they're not an aggressive defense by nature, by personality. But more importantly than the Chiefs being priced next to the Seahawks is the fact that we know Josh Jacobs needs to be in good game flow, good game environments for his offense in order to have his bigger games. Even with a bigger pass game role, in order for Josh Jacobs to have his big games, he almost certainly needs to be in a situation where the Raiders are either in control or close enough to feel like they can get back in control. So if the Chiefs defense is scoring defense special teams touchdowns or getting sacks or forcing turnovers, that probably means Josh Jacobs is having a bad game. Flip that around. If Josh Jacobs is having a bad game, the Chiefs defense is likelier to be having a good game. So while I have Antonio Gibson on this roster and the Chiefs defense on this roster, and those might look like totally unrelated plays. That was a very strategic way to attack those Josh Jacobs rosters. Let's go over to Alvin Kamara and Mike Williams. Alvin Kamara attacks two different players. As we talked about last week, you could break down the way for this, uh, this Saints game to play out. And you recognize that it was going to be very difficult for Kamara plus Taysom Hill to combine for 54, 55 points, which is what about what they needed at 4x their combined salary. They were likelier, as I mentioned last week, they were much likelier to combine for about 47 points. So if you roster Kamara and he's getting 27, I think this was the exact example I used. If you're rostering, actually, I flipped it around, but I said if you're rostering Taysom Hill and he's getting 27, that probably means Kamara is getting about 20. Flip that around the other way. If Kamara is getting 27, that probably means Taysom Hill's getting about 20. How do we come up with those figures? Well, just run through the actual stats, right? Like know that Taysom Hill's probably not throwing for more than 200 yards. That's eight points. Let's say that he rushes for 60 yards. That's six points. That puts him up to 14. Let's say he rushes for a touchdown. That puts him up to 20. Well, we're not expecting the Saints to score more than three touchdowns in this game, even though they're playing the Jets. Their implied total wasn't giving them more than three touchdowns. And if we say that that Taysom Hill is only throwing for about 200 yards, then that doesn't leave that many yards for Kamara through the air. So then you kind of give Kamara his four catches for 40 yards, and that's eight points. And I think that what I said last week was uh, give him give him 110 rushing yards so that he gets the bonus, and now he's sitting at 20 to 22 points. And so then you say, well, let's say the touchdowns, a, a touchdown goes through Kamara, and maybe two touchdowns go through Kamara. But it, it's tough, right? It's tough to get to a point where you're getting up to 55 combined points and feeling like you're still in the range of what's reasonable and realistic given the way that this offense plays, and given the way that, given the fact they were playing the Jets, the Jets, who were not probably going to put up a ton of points and force the Saints to stay super aggressive throughout the game. So, with that in mind, Kamara rosters are attacking Taysom Hill rosters. If Kamara is succeeding, now Taysom Hill didn't fail, 
But if you're rostering Taysom Hill, obviously 20 points, you're very happy with what you're getting for the salary spent, but you're hoping for 25, 26, 27 points. So by rostering Kamara, I'm able to, I'll say it like this, by rostering Kamara on a Lamar Jackson roster, where I'm hoping that Lamar Jackson, I don't want him to be 25 points. I want him to get 33, 35, 38 points. So if Taysom Hill gets 20, everyone's happy with that. But I'm pretty happy with that, too, if my Lamar Jackson stack works out because, and again, once once you put a player on a roster, we always say this, once you put a player on a roster, you are saying that player is going to have the game you want them to have. So now I have Lamar Jackson on this roster. I'm saying Lamar Jackson is going to have a 35-point game. So if I can keep Taysom Hill down at like 20 points, I'm gaining a huge edge on those Taysom Hill quarterback rosters essentially spending about 2K extra in salary for about 15 additional points. So Camara going on this roster directly attacks those Taysom Hill rosters. As we also talked about, same thing with the Josh Jacobs and Antonio Gibson thing, most people are going to be making a decision between Camara and Eckler. I actually messed around with some Camara plus Eckler rosters. One of the ways to do that was to drop from Mark Andrews down to Austin Hooper, which also would have worked in this game. Say that Lamar Jackson, and this is a key point because we're going to talk about this in one of these winning rosters that we're going to look at in just a moment. But you say Lamar Jackson puts up 35 plus points but a lot of it comes through his through his legs. So he only brings one pass catcher with him instead of two. So then Lamar Jackson plus Marquise Brown is the stack. You take out Mark Andrews. You put in Austin Hooper saying, hey, Austin Hooper's cheap. Donovan Peoples-Jones is cheap. We're saying the Ravens put up a ton of points. We're saying the Browns pass a lot. And both of these guys can hit at the same time. That would have allowed me to move from Antonio Gibson up to Austin Eckler and have another unique build, which is Alvin Kamara plus Austin Eckler. So that was another roster that I messed around with this last week. But Alvin Kamara is not only attacking Taysom Hill, but he's also attacking Austin Eckler because people are kind of having to decide between the two. And so you're saying, look, I'm going to bet on a scenario where Alvin Kamara is the better running back to choose between the two here. Now, keep in mind, I wasn't predicting any of this. I actually liked the Taysom Hill side of Taysom Hill or Alvin Kamara a little bit more. I would have preferred to play Taysom Hill over Alvin Kamara. But the moment I put Lamar Jackson on this roster, and this is so important to keep in mind, that it's less about predicting and more about letting the strategy of DFS work for you. The moment I put Lamar Jackson on this roster, I now don't have Taysom Hill. And I now want Taysom Hill to have a 20-point game. Because if Taysom Hill scores 27 and Lamar Jackson scores 35, that extra 2K in salary spent really isn't worth it. I might as well have stayed at Taysom Hill. Because 2K in salary, 8 points, that's 4X. And so... The moment I put Lamar Jackson on here, I know that Taysom Hill, Cam Newton are going to be popular as cheaper quarterbacks, and I really need there to be a big gap between Lamar Jackson and those guys. So I don't have Taysom Hill. I now want to attack the Taysom Hill rosters and bet on a scenario where not only does Lamar hit, but Taysom disappoints, and that would be an Alvin Kamara roster because otherwise I am betting that the Saints just disappoint, that the Saints just fail because their entire offense is going to run through Kamara and Taysom Hill. So no Taysom Hill basically pushed me to say, look, I'm playing Kamara. I don't like Kamara as much as Taysom Hill. I actually liked Austin Eckler a little bit more than Kamara as well. But my decision was made for me 
by the fact that Lamar Jackson was on this roster and that I am going to make more money over time by then following through with what that bet means. A roster in which Lamar Jackson is helping you win first place is also likely a a week in which Taysom Hill is disappointing a little bit. And the way that that happens is Alvin Kamara hitting. So Alvin Kamara goes in the roster. If Alvin Kamara hits, I also need the Austin Eckler rosters to fall behind Alvin Kamara a little bit. I need Alvin Kamara to outscore the Austin Eckler rosters for this to have been the right move, the optimal move. And so I then not only attack the Alvin, the Austin Eckler rosters by having Alvin Kamara, but then I also make sure to prioritize Mike Williams on this roster in order to further attack the Austin Eckler rosters, saying Keenan Allen's out. We're going to have condensed target distribution on this Chargers team. So I am going to say that Austin Eckler maybe just gets a couple extra catches, doesn't end up scoring the touchdowns, some extra work flows through Mike Williams, and he's the reason why Austin Eckler sort of disappoints. So again, these pieces that seem sort of unrelated, Alvin Kamara, Antonio Gibson, Mike Williams, and the Chiefs, they all tie together to say, okay, I'm very specifically betting on a scenario in which this Lamar Jackson build stands out. That probably means Taysom Hill disappoints. That puts Alvin Kamara on this roster. That means I want to further attack the Austin Eckler rosters and take advantage of what might happen if Austin Eckler disappoints, that leads me over to Mike Williams. That also kind of forces me to save some salary at Keelan Cole. Now, again, another way I could have done this was Josh Palmer to attack the Austin Eckler rosters and then done something else with this other 6K in salary that I had over here at Mike Williams. An even sharper way to do that could have been, ready for this, drop from Mike Williams down to Jalen Guyton and from Keelan Cole over to Josh Palmer. And you get to attack the Mike Williams and the Austin Eckler rosters. And you now have 2,300 in salary left over that you can funnel over at at running back where you currently have Antonio Gibson. And so then you go from Antonio Gibson up to Austin Eckler. I guess that doesn't totally work because you have Eckler plus Palmer plus Guyton. So probably you would leave Palmer off and you would go Eckler plus Guyton, and then still leave Keelan Cole on here. But basically, you see, there's a lot of different things that you kind of get these new decision points, but they're not based off of taking the whole slate and trying to predict what's going to happen. Instead, you're just saying, okay, I'm starting at this point. So what does that mean? How does this become a first place roster? If Lamar hits, what do I not need, but what optimally happens from there in order to clear out my path to first place? And how can I then build accordingly? So important, not predicting what's going to happen, but recognizing what is your clearest path to first place? Because if we can play out that slate a hundred times, I am making a lot of money on that slate by having the only Lamar full-on stack in this tournament, and then by building around the rest of that bet the correct way. Now, before I move over to the winners of the slant and the power sweep, one quick thing I want to talk about. The one mistake, like big mistake I made this last week, I missed the cheat code. If you recall, it was all the way back in 2017 when I played uh, Isaiah Crowell and Duke Johnson together on the Browns offense. 
Those two disappointed that week, and I still finished 10th place in the Wildcat with that roster and took some public criticism from people saying, why would you play two running backs from the same roster? And I sort of broke down this idea of this cheat code, basically saying, look, this offense is centered heavily around these running backs. Both of these guys are getting touches. And because they're splitting work, they're cheap enough that you can actually play them together and treat them as one, I think it was like one 8K running back. And you're basically saying, look, 8K running back, you're hoping for about 30 points with upside for 40. Well, these guys had combined for that level of scoring a number of times. They typically combine for at least 24 points and they could get up to 40 combined points. And for a good year or two after that, people would then bring me different running back combos and say, hey, is this a good opportunity for the cheat code right here? And really, I kept saying it's pretty rare that we have one of these opportunities where it makes sense to play two running backs from the same team. But I always kind of keep my eye open for it. What's interesting is this last week, I kept looking at Melvin Gordon. That was actually my my other final decision point on this roster. So I broke down my whole roster. The one other way that I really liked putting it together was instead of Antonio Gibson and the Chiefs defense, I could have gone Melvin Gordon and the Broncos defense. Obviously, that bet ties together really well. The reason I didn't do it, and the reason I was interested in it was because everyone kept saying Javante Williams probably played himself into the lead role last week. Melvin Gordon was out. Javante Williams had this big game. He probably played himself in a lead role. I kept seeing this. Even a 60-40 split in Javante Williams' favor, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, NFL teams don't work this way. Teams don't go 14 weeks into the season, splitting work down the middle, seeing both these guys on the field, breaking down film every week and continuing decide to, to decide to play this thing down the middle. And then all of a sudden, this guy's hurt. This guy has a big game. And they're like, well, let's go ahead and just give him a bunch of extra work. It was far more probable that Melvin Gordon was going to come back and have the same role that he'd had. And Javante Williams was going to have the same role that he'd had. And Javante Williams' ownership projections were coming in two to three to four times higher than Melvin Gordon's ownership projections. So to me, that appeared to be extraordinarily strong leverage. You play Melvin Gordon, he hits instead of Javante Williams hitting, and you move way ahead of everybody. But I went through, I always talk about, right, dig a layer deeper. Don't just go with your initial assumption. Dig a layer deeper. So digging a layer deeper, what I found was typically Melvin Gordon and Javante Williams put up about the same score. There have been two or three times this season where one of them significantly outscored the other. And the rest of the time, they're basically within two to three points of each other. So I kept thinking, well, if I play Melvin Gordon, I'm only saving 500 bucks off of Javante Williams. Javante Williams was 5,900. Melvin Gordon was 5,400. And it was like, what are the chances that Melvin Gordon significantly outscores Javante Williams? What's likelier is that if Melvin Gordon has a good game, Javante Williams is having a good game too. And I'm not gaining any separation from the field. Uh, I'm just kind of riding the same score. Maybe I gain three extra points and save 500 in salary, but that's not really worth it. I can find, you only get nine roster spots, right? Like I can find more powerful ways to attack this slate. Now, this is hindsight where everything looks like you could figure it all out. And we also had Antonio Gibson, who was a bad matchup, 
potentially bad game environment, but it's tough to pass up a guy who has a shot at 30 plus touches. Josh Jacobs, same thing. He was less likely to get to 30 touches, but you know, you're, you're talking about, Hey, maybe Javante Williams and Melvin Gordon can both put up over 20. Well, also you're looking at Antonio Gibson saying, Hey, this guy can put up 32 to 35 points. So it's not as obvious as it looks in retrospect, but what frustrated me or not frustrated, but what, what was kind of a bummer to me was, Oh wow. I didn't even consider this. I kept looking at this and then saying, well, if Melvin Gordon has a good game, Javante Williams probably is too. So what's the leverage? Well, why not play the two guys together? Now you are spending 11.3 K in salary. So that's a strong, bold bet, right? You're saying you need 44 or more points, 45 or more points from these two guys combined to keep you on a 200 point pace. But let's also talk about the state of the slate. We kept talking about this is going to be a lower scoring week than normal. It's likely that you are are not going to need like a 250 point score. So if you can get two running backs who keep you on a 200 point pace, that's pretty good. So Javante Williams, Melvin Gordon would have been a very interesting cheat code stack. Uh, you know, both guys had ownership, obviously Javante Williams, higher ownership than Melvin Gordon, but nobody was playing them together. And that would have been a very interesting way to build. So a little bit disappointed that I failed to see that this last week. And that was kind of the one mistake I felt like I made. Uh, Otherwise, this is something that I would have been very happy with this roster over and over and over again. Uh, Again, got bailed out a little bit by the Chiefs defense, putting up 24 points. But that's what we're looking for is what's the defense that can actually put up a big game and create some separation and also have a strategy angle attached to it where we're attacking, further attacking those Josh Jacobs rosters. So again, I would build this slate a hundred times or this roster a hundred times out of a hundred on that slate. And I would make quite a bit of money if we could play on that slate over and over again because of the way that that roster worked together with the way that the slate itself was set up. Okay, let's move over to the slant, and we'll go through these kind of quickly because we, we've used up a lot of time on that first side of things, and I obviously don't want to waste any of your time. All of this stuff is is important, but uh, a lot of this is also, we again, it's the Pepsi thing, right? We repeat some of these things because it's important to hear them, and it's important to be thinking about how we can tie this stuff into our own thinking. Uh, so first place in the slant. The first place roster in the slant put up 210 points. Interestingly, only eight rosters out of 26,000, only eight rosters topped 200 points. So we were spot on with the state of the slate, what to expect from the slate, how to build for the slate. Again, these rosters had Josh Allen and his 40-point score. There were a couple rosters with Taysom Hill at the top, but these top two rosters at least have Josh Allen 42.22 points. That's kind of helping to vault people up over that 200-point mark. So this first roster, I really like it. If one first place, that's great, right? But a lot of times you can win first place and have a suboptimal roster. A roster that if we played out this slate 100 times, you'd be losing money. Or in other words, if you keep playing that way, you win. It confirms, hey, I'm playing the right way. You keep playing that way. You're actually going to lose all that money back and more over time. This roster was a a really interesting way to build. It was Josh Allen stacked with only Cole Beasley. So standard, 
take a quarterback, stack him with two guys. But we talked about this on that Lamar Jackson build, that one of the ways I could have done that is go from Marquise or, or, or just Lamar plus Marquise Brown and drop from Mark Andrews down to Austin Hooper. Because when you have a running quarterback... Now, Hilo talked about this earlier earlier in the year in one of the Saturday segments for Inner Circle. It's typically a mistake to play one of these super expensive running quarterbacks naked because it's still hard for them to put up a slate-winning score without bringing any pass catcher with them. But if you're playing Brady, you probably need two pass catchers. If you're playing Stafford, you probably need two pass catchers. Now, these are kind of unique situations as well because the Bucks can spread the ball around or Stafford can concentrate so much on Cooper Cup that Cup can put up 40 and, and nobody else puts up a bunch of points. But these are just like general rules. The pocket passers, you want two guys paired with him. But these running quarterbacks, sometimes Josh Allen could have the slate winning score and take two pass catchers with him. But if Josh Allen's putting up 40 points, it's probably because he's picking up a lot of points on the ground, which means that he might only be bringing one of these pass catchers with him. So Josh Allen plus Cole Beasy was how they started this roster. But then they also brought back two players from the other side of this game, basically saying it's it's almost like... They said, hey, how is this game going to play out? Josh Allen's going to run a bunch. He's also going to have some success through the air, but the Bucs are going to take away downfield passing to Emmanuel Sanders and Stephon Diggs, so he's going to be forced to work underneath to Cole Beasley. We talked about this this last week, and that was why I liked Beasley and Knox as the two guys from this Bills team, and we kind of saw this, this playing out with people. Obviously, there was a lot of Diggs ownership, but people were more drawn toward Beasley than we'd seen in a while. Cole Beasley was almost 15% owned uh, in the slant this last week. So Josh Allen plus Cole Beasley plus Leonard Fournette and Chris Godwin. Or in other words, this game still has points being put up. Sure, this slate probably, or this game probably won't go for 40 plus points, but on this slate, if everything else kind of plays out the way that Vegas is saying it's going to play out. Now, again, this wasn't the way I was building, right? I was saying, I don't want to worry about this game. I want this game to play out the way Vegas wants to play out. And I want to find the one game that plays out totally differently. This is a different approach. But if you are approaching things this way, this approach to this roster is really sharp. To say, okay, Josh Allen plus one pass catcher. If a lot of people are going to do two, I'll do one. If a lot of people are going to bring back one player from the Bucks, I will bring back two. Leonard Fournette and Chris Godwin on this roster. A next decision point for a lot of people here would be you've got your stack, you've got your four players from this stack. Uh, which running back do you like the most? So they use Javante Williams. Uh, wouldn't be my pick because he's 21.2% owned. And as I talked about, he's probably still in the same exact timeshare as Melvin Gordon. So why not take the guy in Melvin Gordon who's going to be much lower owned. Melvin Gordon actually ended up outproducing Javante Williams this last week, but Javante Williams still put up 21.3 points. That's the running back. So you've got five spots covered. So what do you want to do in these other spots? Well, if you're thinking through things critically and strategically, you're saying, well, I already have, I have a popular game. Josh Allen's 14% owned. Cole Beasley's 14.7% owned. Fournette's 16% owned. Godwin's 17% owned. You don't know those exact numbers going in, but you do have a pretty good sense going in that, look, all these guys are going to be pretty popular. If all these guys are pretty popular, that means people are building around this game a lot of different ways. So I'm building around this game a little bit differently. I've got 
Josh Allen plus one pass catcher. I'm doing two bringbacks instead of one, but that's not really enough to just totally separate me from the field. So what can I do to separate me from the field? I've got my four-man stack. It's pretty popular. I've got the running back I like. He's pretty popular. So how do I differentiate? This roster has Mark Andrews at 5.8% owned and the Chiefs defense at 4.1% owned. Now, I don't want to try to speak for this player in terms of the player as Bastolos. And I'm pretty sure this was his only roster in a 150 max contest, which is pretty cool. Uh, But I don't know how he's thinking through this in terms of the strategy and what he's thinking about other people doing, or if he's thinking about that at all. But what's great here is now you've, you've got this one sort of half lever pulled with the Bills and Bucks game built a little bit differently than everybody else, but it's still a really popular game. These are still really popular players, and there's still not much separation. So you've got to find a couple other levers to pull. And again, I don't know that this is how this DFS player was thinking through this specifically, but if you're pulling other levers and it's not on a full game stack, it's just on individual plays, and this is critical, it cannot be plays that are just going to match what the other popular plays are going to put up. If you're taking the low-owned guy who might put up the same score as the high-owned guy, that's pointless. You need the type of player who has enormous upside. You need the low-owned player who can blow past other players at that position. What's great about tight end and defense is they're kind of these funnel points where you only play, most people only play one tight end. Everybody can only play one defense. So if you do something different there, you can create big separation if that play ends up hitting. So Mark Andrews, we've seen him put up multiple, I believe multiple 40-point games in his career. He has a 44-pointer this year. We know that he can put up these 28, 30, 40, 45-point games. Now, the reason why Mark Andrews can come in lower owned is because he can also put up six-point games, eight-point games, 10, 12-point games, and you can get a cheap tight end who can put up those types of games. But if you're going to this let's play a different tight end game, which by the way, uh, I'll point out as well that George Kittle was like four or 5% owned this last week. One week after putting up, what was it? Over 40 points, 42.6 points. And then he came out and put up 37.1 points. Now, of course, Debo was playing. So people weren't really thinking about Kittle the same way that they were the week before, but just something else to think about, right? Finding these plays that are low owned and can separate from the field. Same thing I was looking at with Lamar Jackson. I'm not playing Lamar Jackson hoping he gets 25, 26, 27 points. I'm playing him because nobody's on him and he can go for 40. Nobody's on Mark Andrews, 5, 6% owned, and he can go for 40. So when Mark Andrews puts up 31.5 points, you know, Austin Hooper only cost 3,400 and he put up 14 points. That's an Excellent output from your cheap tight end. But it's the same thing we talked about with the Taysom Hill and Lamar Jackson thing. And uh, honestly, this I would almost recommend listening to this inner circle a second time because there's just a lot of things we're hitting on that's like foundational stuff that most people are overlooking. Thinking about how your plays interact with these other plays. Thinking about if, if 
everybody's on Austin Hooper and I'm spending 2,500 extra. If Austin Hooper puts up 14 points, you need Mark Andrews to put up at least 24 just to be worth the extra salary because the 2,500 salary difference, 4X, that is 10 points. So you really need, you need to assume, hey, look, everybody's on Austin Hooper. It's pretty easy to describe how Austin Hooper could get to 10 points, 12 points, 15 points. So if I'm paying up a tight end, I need the guy who can blow past that. So Mark Andrews puts up 31.5 and you've now separated from the cheap tight end rosters. You've not only, you not only have different roster construction, you're now forced to do something different at other positions, but you've also separated at this funnel point of the tight end position. And then the Chiefs defense. And again, under 4% owned, or in this in this case, in the slate, 4.1% owned, and puts up 24 points. So if all the other defenses put up their 7 points, their 8 points, their 10 points, and you can get the defense that is aggressive, that forces turnovers, that tries to go for the ball, the Chiefs have 13 picks, 10 fumbles recovered, and 3 defensive touchdowns on the year. A lot of this comes back to philosophy, approach, aggressiveness, teams that attack the ball, teams that try to make these things happen. Game, The game's at Arrowhead. Derek Carr is missing Darren Waller. He's missing Henry Ruggs. He's missing his head coach from the summer and the start of the season. It's very easy to paint a picture of the Raiders just falling apart in this spot and the Chiefs putting up a big game, a separator type of score. So now you've spent the same salary that other people spend at this position, but picked up 10, 12, 14 extra points. And so again, pulling these different levers at individual positions isn't the best way to do it. But if you're going to do it, you have to do it in such a way that you can get this separation from the field. So there's kind of this half lever pulled with building around the Bills and Bucks game a little bit differently. And then there's these two strong you know, one-off levers pulled with Mark Andrews and the Chiefs defense that kind of creates some major opportunity for major separation from the field. Uh, this roster wraps up with Jalen Guyton, who was 11.5% owned, and Josh Reynolds, who was 2.6% owned. Again, both guys, look, Jalen Guyton, three catches. He put up 17.7 points, but only three catches. Josh Reynolds only put up 8.2 points, but only three catches. Donovan Peoples-Jones actually got six catches, which was a season high, but typically he's getting three, four, five catches. Marquez Valdez-Scantling is typically going to get four or five catches if things come together. And that's what you should be looking for in these cheaper guys is guys who have a downfield role, right? Josh Reynolds, three catches, 52 yards. Jalen Guyton, three catches, 87 yards, and a touchdown. Guys who can put up a... 15, 20-point score at only 3 or 4K in salary. So that was how that roster for the slant was built. Not necessarily how I was attacking this week's slate, but I wanted to kind of break that down and say, look, if you were building around that Bills-Bucks game, here's the way to look to do it. Build a little bit differently than the field is building, and then also make sure you're finding a couple other levers that you can pull that's just different enough from what the field is doing. So now let's look at this power sweep winner, which is uh, 4,383 entries. So we'll call it 4,400 entries. 
And this is the only roster in this tournament that topped 200 points. And in fact, they scored 212, which would have been enough for first place in the slant as well. Same thing as that uh, winning roster in the slant. This roster had Josh Allen and Cole Beasley. So again, just the single stack basically saying, look, here's a running quarterback. Let's bet on him getting a bunch of points with his legs. And Cole Beasley being the guy who goes with him. Mike Evans as the bringback on this roster. So just the single bringback. So let's look at the rest of this roster. Javante Williams is also on this roster. Okay, so we'll leave that one alone. Alvin Kamara. Alvin Kamara, again, attacks Austin Eckler rosters and attacks Taysom Hill rosters. You've got Josh Allen. So you want to say, well, I don't have Taysom Hill. So I want Taysom Hill, obviously not betting on 40 plus points from Josh Allen. So you're hoping for 32, 33, 35 points from Josh Allen. If you get more than that, even further bonus. But you also want Taysom Hill to not have his 25, 27 point game. So you take Kamara on this roster. Well, now you don't have Austin Eckler. So let's think about that by adding Josh Palmer to this roster. Josh Palmer, uh, 8.7% owned, managed to put up 17.6 points with Keenan Allen out. So again, you kind of tell this story. And again, I don't know if this DFS player was doing all of this intentionally, but you're telling this story that puts this whole roster together in such a way that you're positioned for what will get you to first place according to the way that this roster is built. So in other words... If Josh Allen is on the first place winning roster, the likeliest way for that to happen is for Taysom Hill to not have a big game. The likeliest way for Taysom Hill to not have a big game is for Alvin Kamara to be on this roster. If Alvin Kamara is on a winning roster, the likeliest way for that to happen is for Austin Eckler to not have a huge game. If Austin Eckler doesn't have a huge game, a different player on the Chargers should have a big game. Josh Palmer goes on this roster. So I really like the way that this is all put together with Josh Allen, Cole Beasley, Mike Evans, uh, Javante Williams as their preferred running back, and then Alvin Kamara and Josh Palmer. Again, Alvin Kamara and Josh Palmer seem like unrelated plays, but they are actually like they're actually correlated plays in terms of not production, but in terms of what would get you to a first place finish. Mark Andrews is also on this roster. So again, we don't have any big levers pulled yet at this point. Josh Allen, Cole Beasley is a pretty popular stack. Mike Mike Evans, 14.8% owned in this tournament. Chris Godwin is pulling about 17% ownership. So basically, you know, no leverage there, no strategy gained there. You're just hoping for an outscore here. Alvin Kamara, Josh Palmer, that's a pretty nice way to attack those Austin Eckler rosters. But Alvin Kamara is 27% owned in this tournament. And even Josh Palmer, 8.7% owned. So nothing huge. Now, if Josh Palmer puts up 20 25 points and no other cheap wide receiver hits, you gain a pretty big edge. But at 8.7% owned and a 17 point score, you're not gaining a ton. So this roster still has to do at least one and probably two things really differently. So what does this roster do differently? Mark Andrews at tight end. We won't go through that again, but Mark Andrews at tight end, 4.8% owned in this tournament. And then they play the Seahawks defense. Everybody's playing the Seahawks defense, 15.5% owned. They're playing the Texans. So how do we separate this, this Seahawks defense play a little bit? Well, instead of just playing the Seahawks defense, let's tell the story that could be told by the Seahawks defense having a strong game. And let's put Rashad Penny on this roster. 
I messed around with Rashad Penny in my thoughts a little bit last week. I don't imagine I ever would have taken on that unnecessary level of risk in the game changer where you're competing against 317 other rosters. But this is a really sharp play. In fact, uh, Evan Silva's roster in the game changer had Rashad Penny on it. So obviously... Uh, recognizing an opportunity for Rashad Penny to have a bigger role than the field is going to be anticipating. Keep in mind, Pete Carroll loves Rashad Penny, still talks him up all the time. He was his first round pick several years ago, still hasn't panned out, has never been able to, to stay healthy. But every other running back on this Seahawks offense has looked pretty trashy this year by NFL standards. So Rashad Penny's healthy, and here's an opportunity against the awful run defense of the Houston Texans for them to get Rashad Penny going. Rashad Penny is 2% owned, and the chances of him having a big game are heightened if the Seahawks or Seahawks defense is having a big game. So rather than just making the same 15.5% owned bet that everybody else is making on the Seahawks defense, you say, okay, not just the Seahawks defense, but also add in Rashad Penny, 4,800, 2.1% owned, 29.8 DraftKings points scored. And that's the difference on this roster. Sure, Josh Allen scored 42.2 points, but 14.2% of the field had him. Sure, Alvin Kamara scored 27.5 points, but 27% of the field had him. Mike Evans only went 3x his salary and was 15% owned. Josh Palmer put up 17.6 points at 3K. That's excellent, but almost 10% of the field got those points. So what actually got this roster to first place? Mark Andrews and Rashad Penny. Rashad Penny at 2.1% owned, Mark Andrews at 4.8% owned. So you kind of see the different uh, ways to first place from the way that I built my roster this last week and then what got these first place rosters for these these other two people in the slant and the power sweep this last week. So for me, it was I'm going to pull this one lever on this stack that can, if everything works out the right way, and, and it's inarguable that if we played out that slate 100 times, there's going to be a handful of times where Ravens-Browns ends up blowing past all the other games on that slate. And so for me, I'm going to pull this one lever. If it happens, I basically have first place as long as I don't make other mistakes. Because if it happens, it can happen to such a high level. In fact, I broke this down last week. There were were very clear ways for those four players from the Ravens-Browns game very easily to go for 100 points on their own. But also, Lamar plus Mark Andrews plus Marquise Brown had uh, 120 combined points in their game against the Colts earlier this year. And in that type of game, Donovan Peoples-Jones is probably getting 20 to 30 points of his own. And now you're sitting on 140 to 150 from four players. So for me, if that comes together and I'm the only person who has it on a week where we don't expect many people to put up 200 points, again, in the slant out of 26,000 rosters, eight people put up 200 points. In the power sweep out of 4,400 rosters, one person put up 200 points. So if you can get the game that can go, you know, four players combined for 100, 110, 130, 140, well, you're you're getting first place as long as you don't just crush your roster in your other spots. So I pull this huge lever that moves me ahead of everybody and then from there, all I do is take the plays that I like the most and make sure that they're properly attacking other popular 
plays. Or you stack around a popular game and maybe try to do it a little bit differently or in at least the most intelligent manner. There were also some really sharp rosters that I saw in, in kind of trying to figure out which ones I wanted to break down. Then I saw a lot of really sharp rosters that had Josh Allen and Dawson Knox or Josh Allen, Cole Beasley, Dawson Knox. Dawson Knox was uh, pretty close to ending up on my roster this last week as well with the obvious caveat that the uh, it was tough for me to get off the full Raven stack because of the way I wanted to attack this last week's slate. Uh, but you take this popular game and you, and you just can't get away from it. You say, look, I know everybody's on this game, but it's just a higher over-under than everything else. And sure, there's some other games that could blow past this, but if none of them do, this is the game to stack. So let me stack it. Let me, let me stack it in the most intelligent way that's a little bit different from what the field is doing. And then from there... I got to get some players I really like, right? So both of these guys, it was Javante Williams. They stuck with that. But I have to find one or two big levers to pull. So on the slant roster, it's Mark Andrews and the Chiefs defense. And actually, Josh Reynolds was actually a, a big lever being pulled, even though it didn't pay off. 2.6% owned. And then in this other roster, it was uh, Rashad Penny and Mark Andrews. And saying, look, I don't have anything super different with my stack, but I'm going to find these little one-off levers and I'm going to pull something that can get me way past the field, something that can blow me past what everybody else is doing to make it worth the risk I'm taking on. So with that, we are going to wrap up the roster breakdowns. I am going to really quickly remind you one more time that on that inner circle page, uh, which you can find on the homepage of OWS. Uh, you can find a link to the OWS for life page, 122 memberships remaining there. And then I'm going to take the one question that has come in, which I think is a really interesting question to break down, especially given what we've been seeing lately. So Ritters asked, I know it has been a running joke about not playing two tight ends. It seems with players like Kittle, Kelsey, Andrews, Waller, etc., having big ceilings, is this a now more viable tactic, especially compared to wide receivers of the same price? Cheers and many thanks for you and the team's work. So two tight ends. I saw an Andrews and Kittle roster this last week. How wonderful is that? That combined for about 70 points and only spent about 12K in salary. So let's talk about this. So one of the one of the problems with the two tight end setup is that a lot of times people use it as a way to save salary. So, you know, O'Shaughnessy was is under 3k and people want to play him and or Austin Hooper is 3400 and people want to play him. And so people end up sacrificing ceiling for for salary savings, right? So instead of taking on you know, you can look and say okay, Austin Hooper has this role, O'Shaughnessy has this role and they're going to get some points and so I feel pretty safe about that and I can maybe get to 4x. And so you end up bypassing the Donovan Peoples Jones who was 3,900 or the, the Marquez Valdez Scantlings on another week who can put up 25 to 27 points if everything comes together. The Josh Palmers, the Jalen Guytons, these players who you can pay very little for and they can end up getting you 
20, 22, 25 points. And these cheap tight ends, it can feel great when you get 12 points from the 3K guy. But if somebody else pays 3K for a wide receiver and gets 22 or 25 points, sure, they took on more risk because they took on the guy with a deep A dot role. But you're competing against hundreds or thousands of rosters. So if you take the tight end that gets you 12 points, 14 points, and you have them in the flex spot, somebody else in that tournament is going to have the cheaper wide receiver who blows past that score. So you sacrifice ceiling in order for a feeling of comfort and a level of safety. And that's the mistake most people make when using two tight ends. We've also had for years Travis Kelsey occasionally uh, occasionally puts up like a 40-pointer, which is great. But the reason why his price is at 7K, you can even go back to last year, it's because he has so consistently put up 20 points, 18, 20 points. And at tight end, where most tight ends, you're lucky, if, especially the cheaper tight ends, you're lucky if you're getting 6 points, 7 points, 8 points, or you pay up for Waller. And he has these random 30-point games. Waller is like Kelsey, right? Kelsey has these random 40-point games. But other than that, he's never going for 4X's salary, right? It's always like 3X, 2.5X, every once in a while, 3.5X, going all the way back to last year. This is just the way that, that Kelsey's games play out. Waller, same way, right? Waller gets the occasional 30-pointer, but the rest of the time, he's putting up 10 points, 11 points, 12 points. And so you end up overpaying for this 30-point score, because, or you end up overpaying for the actual chances of a 30-point score compared to what you could get at other positions. And if you miss, you actually end up with a really disappointing score. And the reason why these players can be priced like that is because the rest of the tight end position is so barren that DraftKings wants to make you decide, do I want to take a shot on the potential for a big score at tight end? knowing that if I miss, I'm in pretty tough shape because I've spent, you know, a lot more than I should have at this position. I got I got 12 points from Waller, but somebody else got the $3,100 tight end who put up 12 points. And now they spent 3K less in salary and they have the same score I scored. Uh, or somebody got the 4K tight end, the 4,200 tight end who put up 20 points, 18 points, whatever. And that's what Kelsey put up, but you spent 3K more in salary to get that same score. So it's like we've talked about the value of Kelsey Waller, these guys, is the positional advantage that they provide when they put up their 30 point score and every other tight end puts up 15 points or fewer. But the point brought up in this question is really sharp, and that is compare it to wide receiver pricing. And that's what I always like to do with tight end is compare it to what you can get at other positions. This is a salary cap game, and that's one of the things that most people miss. That's why most people don't think enough about what type of ceiling they're getting for the salary spent. That's why a player like DeAndre Hopkins could go two years before the field finally caught on and stopped rostering him. It wasn't until like week six or seven of this year that DeAndre Hopkins stopped being 12 to 15 to sometimes 20% owned when he's never going for ceiling games. You can pay 500 extra for a player like Devontae Adams who can go for 40, 45, 50 points. 
you could pay 500 extra for a player like Tyreek Hill, who, who could go for 40 to 50 points. Or you could play DeAndre Hopkins, who was going to go for 17 to 25. And yet, because of the name value and the matchup and all this stuff, people just aren't thinking about the high-end scores, the asymmetric bets that they should be placing in tournaments. So one of the issues with tight end is typically, well, you're not getting the asymmetric bets. You're not getting the guys who can just crush their salary. But as we get deeper into the season, the guys who used to be $5,500 wideouts, $4,800 wideouts, 6K wideouts, and have now proved that they should be priced higher, right? We could get Jamar Chase for $5,500 earlier in the season. Now you have to pay over 7K for him. We could get Debo Samuel for, I think, like as little as 6300 earlier in the season. Now you have to pay 8K for him. You could get Mark Andrews for 5800 earlier in the season. And now you can still get Mark Andrews for 5800 so as we get deeper into the season, the wide receivers who were underpriced before are now appropriately priced. But because these tight ends miss with the frequency that they do, they kind of keep the same price tags. So at this point in the season, it becomes more and more viable. You can't find or it's much harder to find the Mark Andrews, George Kittle, even Rob Gronkowski ceilings at wide receiver at the same price points. When I think of rules in DFS, I think of, I basically, I think of edges, right? Because most people view these as rules and I view them as guides. And that's how we should be viewing them is as a guide where it's like, okay, over time, it's more profitable to not play two tight ends. Over time, it's profitable to correlate correctly because NFL scoring is correlated. Over time, it's profitable to pair a running back with your defense or whatever it might be. But in the isolated instances, there's always room for nuance. There's always room for different directions to go. And so one of the things that we're seeing right now is at this point in this particular season where we've we've spent a ton of time breaking down this year why the running back position is different than it was even last year, but especially two years ago, three years ago. Running back position is so different this year and how you should be allocating salary and thinking about the position well, then move over to wide receiver. Well, wide receiver, the guys who were underpriced are now either overpriced or appropriately priced. And then we bring over to tight end where pricing has remained pretty static throughout the season. And so all of a sudden we have an opportunity to say, well, compare these 6K tight ends, even the 5K tight ends to the 6K wide receivers, the 5K wide receivers the 6K running backs, the 5K running backs. And all of a sudden we see a pathway to it being much more interesting to playing two tight ends. So again, this is also not a rule. It's not like, okay, now we start looking to play tight ends. This is just saying, don't cross that off your list automatically. Don't just automatically say, okay, I can't play two tight ends. That's dumb to do. Instead say, okay, let's keep our eyes open for the viability of that on this particular week. So again, you, the the Austin Hooper plus higher price tight end isn't as interesting to me. Because in the Austin Hooper price range, if I'm if I'm using a tight end in the flex, 
and one of those two tight ends I'm using is in the Austin Hooper price range. Well, I want to be then thinking, well, am I leaving points on the table? What are the chances of Austin Hooper? Are the chances of Austin Hooper getting 12 to 14 points with all the other Browns tight ends? Are the chances of him getting 12 to 14 points higher than the chances of Jalen Guyton getting 12 to 14 points? Yeah, absolutely, because Jalen Guyton's kind of a boom or bust player with his downfield role. But are the chances of Austin Hooper getting 25 points lower than the chances of Jalen Guyton getting 25 points? 100%. Jalen Guyton had three catches for 87 yards and a touchdown. One more catch for an extra 15 yards, and then you add the three-point bonus, right? That's an extra seven and a half points just for another 15-yard catch. Or excuse me, an extra five and a half points, but just for an extra 15-yard catch. And so then you, then he's sitting on... 23 points instead of 17 and a half points, right? Austin Hooper is going to have a really tough time getting up to 23 points. And so when you're using a guy like one of these cheap tight ends, who's valuable because they're a tight end and they're cheap. When you play one of these cheap tight ends, you're basically saying, look, if Waller and Kittle and Kelsey and Gronk, if all these guys end up kind of on their lower end and Hooper gets his you know, 10, 12, 14 points. Well, now I've spent a lot less in salary and got kind of pretty close to the same score I could have gotten for paying more. But the value of that goes away if you're now playing two tight ends. But flip that over to playing two of the more expensive tight ends and you're saying, look, who are the other 5K, 6K wide receivers who I feel pretty good about them getting 30 points, 37 points? Look what Mark Andrews did this last week and look what Kittle did this last week. And now also look through their game logs. In fact, I'll, I'll help you out. I'll do that for you. Uh, Kittle, 11.8, 5.7, 17.1, 17.5. he got hurt. So we'll throw that one out. Um, But yeah, like there's a lot of 13.4, 16, 8, 5.7, 11.8. That's a lot of disappointing scores in here, right? If if Kittle had put up a score like that, and if Mark Andrews had put up a, well, let's look at Mark Andrews, right? Uh, Nine points last, or two weeks ago, 16.5 the week before, 15.3, 18 18.3, 9.4, 7.8. So if Mark Andrews had put up 10 points and Kittle had put up eight or nine points, then nobody's saying, oh man, I should have played two tight ends. So it has to come together on the right week and it's not always going to happen. But what we need to recognize is that with wide receivers pricing being adjusted upward as these wide receivers have proved that they should be higher priced and with tight end pricing remaining pretty static, we actually have a pretty interesting opportunity to exploit the two tight end setup while most of the field is not looking to do it. So again, I would not treat this as something automatic. I might not do it myself a single time down the stretch, but we need to recognize that because of the way that the pricing is shaping up and the way that teams are playing and the way teams are using their running backs. And so therefore the way that these 6K running backs are kind of priced from like their floor and ceiling range, right? We talked about Javante Williams and Melvin Gordon. Well, the chance of them getting like the 32 points that that Antonio Gibson could get were pretty low because they're splitting work. So if we're saying that these guys who were priced at 5,400 and 5,900 are going to have a really tough time getting above like 25 points, and we've got these tight ends priced about the same, they can get up to 30, 37 points. Yes, we should be considering these tight ends, and we should be considering them independent of what their positional designation is.
So even when even when we're early in the season and we have all these underpriced wide receivers, I'm always considering everything. I want to consider who are the what's the best way to spend salary and what exposes me to the most upside possible. And if that's two tight ends, I will do it. But as we're at this point in the season, it's becoming likelier and likelier that I could run into a week where I say, yeah, two tight ends is actually the best way to go here. And there's the additional edge that most people aren't going to do it. So if it's a 50-50, if it's a coin flip between this roster with two tight ends and this roster that's built differently, well, you know that the two tight end roster sets you apart from the field. So that's another little edge going to the two tight end roster. So I think it's a super sharp question and a super sharp way to frame it. And again, as we as we move through a season, we always want to be assessing everything and staying open to everything. So yes, two tight ends. Strong and viable, very interesting way to go right now, especially when we are paying up for these tight ends with the 30-point ceilings. With that, we will call this session a wrap. Uh, As we mentioned in that email that went out to you guys a couple of weeks ago or last week, be be sure to shoot us an email or hit us up on Discord with thoughts of things you'd like to see in Inner Circle next year. Uh, again, we are, this is year one. So a lot of you were here in year one of, of OWS and you've seen how much we've grown and improved and added on to things from year one to now. We are looking to do the same thing with Inner Circle. So again, part of next year, we're going to add add some workshops and we're going to add kind of a lot more organization in terms of, hey, at this point in the season, we're going to be focused on this. At this point, we're going to be focused on this. Uh, We're going to have some stuff that's like very specifically for MME play, very specifically for single entry play, very specifically for mini multi-entry, for cash games, so that whatever you're doing in DFS, we can kind of help you maximize your play instead of just saying instead of just talking as broadly about DFS in general. So um, some really cool stuff that we're already working on for next year. But again, shoot us any thoughts that you have of things that you'd like to see or thoughts or opinions or ideas or whatever it might be. And check out the OWS for life option. Again, that's on the inner circle page from the homepage on OWS. Um, and you'll find that inner circle, like orange inner circle button, and that'll take you to the inner circle page. And from there you can, you can click on the OWS for life option. So 122 of those left, I would imagine we'll be down to about a hundred by the end of this week. And then, then we'll see what shakes out from there. So as always, thanks for hanging out. I will see you guys on the site throughout the week and I will see you at the top of the leaderboard this weekend.